Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, here with Elias Randall. Elias, what's happening today? Not a whole lot. So I'm the co-host of the Behind the Well Show, right? Can I call myself the co-host? Sure. You've, you've earned that opportunity. In fact, right before the show, we were discussing you doing the opening monologue. Yep, and I'm passed. back. And uh, the YouTube watchers will notice I'm back in plaid today. So we had some pretty good topic so i figured it'd be a good time to pull out a power uh, a, a power plaid shirt so i'm going with the power plaid look today well a couple people asked about it when we were on wmt 600 the other night doug asked why you weren't in plaid and um i don't know someone else said well elias you're not wearing plaid today so i, I i'm not sure Here, that here's they appreciated my the, the lack of plaid here's my answer i'm a dynamic person hey Let's go for it. I like it. I like when you're a dynamic. You're bringing the energy. You're bringing the heat. Um, you know, my friend Aaron online, I remember way back about four months ago, you had a pretty good following. They're like, Elias, you can do it. You can I still do it. Do. Yeah. You're bringing the heat now. There's a segment of our fans that probably watch just for me. I'm and sure. I'm, and I'm happy with that. It's most likely your brother and sister-in-law and mom <laughs> my family. family probably like me too but whatever um something molly talked with me about the show and i don't know if you know this or not but this is actually our the mark of our one year so we've been doing this for a year we've been having so, a lot of fun with it it's changed a lot from you know the beginning but it's a pretty exciting time to have done this for a year now yeah we we have come a long way and um i did know that i was hoping she mentioned that to me and not you but she told both of us Cause I was hoping to bring it up, but yeah, it's our one year anniversary show. And, uh, I'll just say this to the watchers on YouTube and the listeners go back to some of those first episodes. And I think you're going to see some improvement from then until now. Yeah. And hopefully we keep it going. I mean, that's the goal is to increase the amount of education we're providing, you know, have better content, make it entertaining. I mean, we don't want to just get up here and be dry. We try to have fun with this and you know, none of this is scripted or anything. We're just talking about what's happening in the world and how we think we can help people shooting from the hip with that said there's been a lot of changes happening this week one of the big things in our industry is something called the ira the auto ira bill um i don't know i'm sure you've read about this but it was voted by the house ways and means committee passed by a 22 to 20 vote and basically what this means is employers with more than five employees are now going to be required to auto-enroll those employees into either a 401k or an IRA. Yeah, so what's your initial reaction to this? Good idea, bad idea, indifferent? So I'm split on it. I think it's a great idea from the retirement saver standpoint. And I like people to think about it this way. When you go get your first job, you make $1,000, get a $1,000 gross paycheck. By the time it all comes to you, they take out you know your dental and your health insurance and your FICA and your state tax and all those different things. You get like 810 bucks. I don't know, I'm making a number up, just somewhere in there. The auto enrollment feature that's been proposed and passed is a 6% automatic enrollment. So on a $1,000 check, they put $60 in. Most people, if they get 750 versus 810, they're not gonna know the difference. Unless they got eight ten to start, and then the next check was seven fifty. But if seven fifty was the baseline check they were getting, that's just what they assume they're going to get. So it's automatically getting people started 
on the right foot. And we've talked about this a long time. There was a book written called Save More Tomorrow. I know Jonas in our office talks about it, but it's the idea of putting money in and then having an auto escalation clause. This auto IRA bill has an automatic escalation clause each year too until an employee employee gets to 10%, which just think about what we talk to people about. Just start saving 10% right away. Well, this bill puts people on the right track. The only way to get out of this is the employee has to actually opt out of it. And human, so, so human, there has to be effort to not participate. And most people don't put effort into their paycheck. They just get the paycheck and it is what it is. I mean, that's just right. And if most people see, oh, 50 bucks went into a retirement account, they're probably going to think, okay, that's a good thing. I'm not going to opt out. Truth be told, paycheck stubs aren't always the easiest thing to figure out. Well, they actually know if they put it in or the employer. That's really the question. Well, I mean, a lot of people are they really going to break it down and say, well, I put in $60 and then I paid FICA the 120 and my employer paid FICA 120 or whatever the numbers come out to be. They're not doing that. They're saying how much is in my bank account. And if we take it out before it gets to the bank account, we're putting them on the right track to save. So from that standpoint, I think this is actually a great bill. Now, the challenge becomes for the employers. There's an added cost. There's an added level of complexity to actually do this. Um, it's reported that to offset those admin costs, employers are actually going to receive a tax credit. Um, I don't think they've actually said how much that is. So I think the challenge from it is, hey, it's another level of complexity from a business owner standpoint. But the one thing I think about, and you brought this up on the radio the other night, Elias, and I'll let you talk about it is, Automatically enrolling someone in a 401k doesn't inherently solve the problem that we have in this country. Right. And, and what's th the problem? So, and that's kind of where, when I was reading this, I that, that was my thought. I started to think, okay, so this is, I like this. This is a nice step going in the right direction. But it's almost like a Band-Aid on a wound that needs stitches. And there's a little, to, to me, there's a little bit of, we're trying to pass on the, responsibility of retirement savings to our small businesses and our companies. And I would like to see more effort of teaching people about money in the, you know, like in the education system, making it more of a priority in the public schools. And when people are, are younger, because I think the real, this is a nice thing and I'm not bashing it. I think this is a great idea. I think the real solution to some of these money things is financial education. And when someone's when someone's 18 years old, you don't need to know like options trading strategies. You don't need to know the the really complex things of the capital markets, but you should have some level of understanding like what the S&P 500 is, what a stock is, what a bond is. And then also understanding how you can use retirement accounts and use investments to build wealth over a long period of time. Because as we know, the younger you are when you start, it's just the easier it is. So even with this bill, someone who's 18 and starts their first job, $50, even $50 a month could be really meaningful for them over their entire career. So that's kind of, I, I like this idea. But the one thing kind of, and it's not a criticism, I'm just saying that it's not, I don't feel like it's companies' responsibilities and how many business owners actually understand the equity markets and the bond markets and all that. 
where they're actually where they could be relied on to help teach their employees. Many can't do that. Well, so I there think, needs to be a, a more, I don't know, a bigger effort towards it. I think two things would help. Number one, we're going to see in our industry if this goes through and how it plays out, we're going to be helping a lot more small business owners. Right. I mean, I we are absolutely so. going to be helping more business owners because you hit the nail on the head. The business owner knows intimately how to run their business. They don't really get into our world. So the onus is going to fall on us to help educate the business owners and get these plans set up for them. But number two, I think you're spot on about the education of young, young adults. Think about how our education system is set up to graduate college. Most colleges require four years of foreign language. Yeah, which, to, to get accepted into the school. Or even graduate. Right. You go to Iowa State or wherever, it's four years of foreign language, depending upon your major. They don't require any personal financial management. So think about that. We're putting an emphasis on four years of foreign language and zero on financial. In high school, if we started teaching people about the power of compound interest and put a focus on that and a focus on how to manage your debt, my question is, would we have more people that the first thing they do when they graduate high school is get a job and help pay their way through college versus signing up for a thirty-five dollars or a $40,000 loan to go to the school of their choice? Because they don't recognize that in 20 years, you're still going to be paying for that student loan, where arguably the foreign language they took, and I'm not bashing foreign language, makes you a whole person. It doesn't help you be a wealthier person. It doesn't put you on the right financial track. So I just believe that our our values are completely misaligned. And maybe that's on purpose. I don't know. I don't know if they just don't want people to know about finances. But this should be a core of curriculum at schools. Start people off the right way. How many clients, or um, Elias, have we sat down with? And they said, hey, I really want my 17 or 18 or 19 year old to do this. And we go and we do a hypothetical illustration on Morningstar of a fund with a 35 year track history and then putting a 100 or $200 a month. Uh, we uh, a lot. And actually, I've kind of, it, to me, it seems like and you could back this up. The longer someone's been with our firm and kind of seen the results of working with a professional, they could be like, hey, I really want you to call my grandson, my granddaughter. Hey, can my kids come meet with you when they graduate college? We get that a lot because they just know they know they can a little bit's going to go a lot further for the young person. It turns into millions of dollars. If anybody wants to see it, I'll have Molly put a link on the website to the, the little Morningstar report we do. It's millions of dollars because they're starting at 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. And to do a Roth IRA, all they have to do is have some earned income. So if we're right. working a part-time right. job, you can put some money in here. So that's where it should start. I, but I do think this bill is a very, very good thing for um, all kind of retirement savers um, in question. There's a couple other parts of it, though, which... I'm trying to figure out how this is going to work, but part of the bill requires employers to offer employees with a $200,000 vested retirement account balance, the option to take a distribution up to 50% of savings to purchase a lifetime income solution. Well, let me tell everybody what a lifetime income solution is. That's an annuity. And I don't know whether I'm allowed to say annuity or not, but that's what it is. The interesting thing about this is three years ago, the Department of Labor came out and said, we want all IRA money 
basically in managed accounts or accounts with no conflict of interest. There's very few annuity options in managed accounts that provide lifetime income. So I'm not sure how this is going to work and how this is going to jive with the Department of Labor. I'm not saying it's good or bad that they did this. I'm just saying it doesn't really jive with other stuff that's been done. Yeah, and that's where I was confused too when I was reading it was because a life they in the article they call it a lifetime income solution. Well, we're in the business. We know that's some kind of annuity. It'd be similar to a pension or an annuity. And a pension is an annuity. Right. That's what it is. Right. Um yeah, and just like you're saying, I was confused because that doesn't that isn't in line with their previous kind of the mission that they were on to put get everyone in in managed accounts. Um but I will say and that could be I guess I started to think and Maybe they're looking, maybe they're starting to get ahead of the social security problem. And I don't know, maybe saying getting ahead of it's maybe not the right way to say it. But if people can accumulate wealth and then provide like some sort of reliable income or a guaranteed income from an insurance company through an annuity or from a financial company through an annuity, that might start to lessen the burden on social security. So maybe this is kind of leading in that direction without getting... You know, the, too the speculative issue with, on what, what's the issue going with on. that product in particular is there's been there's been massive abuse in that product. So it's just odd to me that they'd be pushing people that direction. But here's what I can tell somebody. Here's how you make a decision as to whether that makes sense for you. You do a financial plan. Because in a financial plan, you actually can model side by side, hey, here's if I leave my two hundred thousand invested in my four hundred one K and here's if I go, go buy a lifetime income solution. The financial planning module will actually do that for somebody. So this should be good for us because we can talk to people. You don't have to guess. Let's put mathematical calculations behind if and when and why we should do this type of a thing. I do think it could be a little bit of a Band-Aid, like you said, for the Social Security problem that's out there. Um, we already have a retirement crisis. So any of this stuff is good to make sure that, you know, people are saving for retirement. And anytime these bills or laws or legislations done. I, I just always think of who's crafting it. And it's not crafted by financial professionals who understand the markets, it's politicians. So it's the equivalent of me drafting legislation about structural engineering. <laughs> I don't know anything about it, You're right. but that's who's drafting this stuff. So it's not going to make sense. They'll get it figured out as they work with all the departments. But in general, I think this is a good thing um, for most people. Uh, the other thing, and we let in this the other night, we had a call on the radio show about, you know, our thoughts on our thoughts on crypto. Yeah. Well, something that's really, really come front and center. And we haven't heard about crypto that much, honestly, for like five months. I feel like it's just kind of been in the background. The price is kind of jostled around, but the sec is currently suing Coinbase. What does that mean for the cryptocurrencies, Elias? Yeah. So the kind, the, uh, the, basis of the lawsuit is Coinbase is using a separate program called Coin Coinbase Lend, where people are allowed to loan their cryptocurrency to someone and earn interest. So now the question is, does that make cryptocurrency a security? So that and then that would fall under the SEC. So now they're able to sue Coinbase to determine, are we going to now classify this as a security? Well, interestingly enough, so that came down in the recent, um, the $2 trillion tax hike uh, that the House passed here like two or three days ago. Um, 
they actually extend tax rules on the sale of equities to cryptocurrency and commodities for the first time. So basically what they're going to do is start taxing crypto similar to the sale of a stock. Right now, so it's definitely moving in the direction of being a security, moving in the direction of being a security. But also what's happening, we're getting regulation mm -hmm. and with regulation causes some level of uncertainty. And I don't know where that'll end up going, but it is big news that, you know, now we have the SEC getting involved um, and it probably needs some level of regulation right now. I think the regulation shouldn't just be lawsuits. I mean, let's figure out how to regulate this and not depend on a lawsuit to create the legislation. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, there should be a way to come up with regulation. I understand that cryptocurrency is a new product and a new idea, but there's other, there's other things out there that it's kind of similar to like the commodities market or the securities market. So you could come up with regulation to, you know, start to have rules and then you know, it's not going to go, it's just like anything else. It's not going to go untaxed. There has to be ways to tax it. And right now I believe it's taxed as property. Um, if it becomes a security, is that going, does that change the tax treatment? Like, is it going to be looked at more like short-term and long-term capital gains or will it still be taxed like to sell a property? I, I assume it's going to be taxed like long and short-term capital gains, Right. which maybe that eliminates some of the volatility. Because right now there's a massive amount of volatility in, if you watch the price of crypto, it's could be up and down 10% in a couple of days. Well, if all of a sudden we have short-term capital gains rules and wash sale rules, maybe the volatility kind of gets sucked out of the cryptocurrency market a little bit. Elias, I don't know, I know you have this on your screen, not sure if you read this article, but I came across an article, it was called Why Most Financial Plans Fail. And I started thinking like, you know, we always talk about the power of why financial plans are good and how it can move someone from the unbiased, or move somebody, how, geez, how a financial plan can move somebody from the opinionated world to the unbiased, probabilistic world and really help them. But I read this article and said, why most financial plans fail? And before I read it, I just started thinking through my head, what are the reasons these plans don't work? And I just kind of assumed that this article was going to say the same thing, but they were completely opposite of what I actually thought were the problem with financial plans and what this gentleman had wrote. Um, yeah, I actually thought the article like, so after reading it, I thought this article was more about like why people should maybe hire him or work with him than why financial plans fail. Well, but the first, the first thing you put on your lies is a sales oriented industry. Well, I'll be honest with you. Most people I know doing financial plans aren't running a sales oriented process. It, this is the way it was 20 years ago before you started. I got licensed in 2002 through life in life investors, Transamerica. And they taught us how to use this little fact finder. And basically what it was, was it was a little mini miniature financial planning software to show somebody how much life insurance they needed to fill this gap so they could retire if somebody happened. So back then it was that way. I think, today's financial plan is taking us so far away from the product sale that it's strictly focused on the best possible outcomes for the client. So I disagree with him, but here's what I'll tell you. Here's my number one reason that financial plans fail and it's unrealistic expectations. And when I say that people's first thought are, Oh yeah, someone's showing a 10% rate of return. Nope. That's not what I mean. I mean, unrealistic expectations from a spending standpoint of the client. And I'll tell you why I had someone come to my office and I said, well, how much would you like to spend each month in retirement? So the key word there is like, 
Not need, but like. We're not supposed right. to just get by in retirement. Right. We're, we're not asking necessities. We're asking lifestyle. Right? And here's the answer. Well, we don't spend a whole lot. Not I go, much. And I know this person well. I'm not going to say who it is. We don't, no, not a lot. I go, well, okay, well, what's not a lot? Well, you know, food and a cell phone and utilities. And I know their lifestyle. They spend more than just that. But they were instantly thinking just, oh, like 1500 bucks a month. Like we don't have any bills. Everything's paid for. We don't spend anything. When in reality, they enjoy camping and traveling and all that stuff adds up. I said, no, you don't understand. Like how much are you going to spend? Is it 6000 or 8000 But it's not 1500 And when I say unrealistic, unrealistic expectations, people come in here and I ask them that question. And their expectations that they're going to spend $2,500 on their necessities. They forget about seeing grandkids in the travel. And why this is the number one reason plans fail is if I punch in $3,000 as your spending rate and I create you a financial plan because that's what you told me you want to spend and you spend six, it's not my fault. It's wrong. It's yours. Yeah, you had that, an unrealistic expectation of what you were going to that, spend. That's fumbling the snap right there. You don't even get the player in because you fumbled the snap. You know, we... At our first meeting, when we talk and meet with people, the first meeting's not about anything financial. It's actually about trying to set these expectations. And I tell that person at that second meeting, it is like going to the doctor's appointment. I mean, when you go to the doctor's appointment, the second meeting, or you walk into the University of Iowa to get some work done, he doesn't grab the scalpel, wash his hands, and throw on some gloves. They're doing an EKG and getting all the background history that they can possibly get so they can get the best outcome for you. Working with a financial planner is no different. You need to have the most accurate data possible. If you don't, it's garbage in the computer, garbage out. So for me, that's my number one reason why financial plans fail. Do you have another one? Yeah, so two thoughts. Um, one, just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying there. When you're, for people looking at retiring, um, you should feel good about spending that money too. I think sometimes people, they kind of get hesitant about spending the money. The reason you sacrificed and saved all that money was to spend it and enjoy it. So feel good about the spending. And and it's okay to say, you know, if you think you can live off um, like 6,000, maybe just say you want to spend eight, live it up a little bit and enjoy it. Um, and then my other thought, so in, you know, yours was unrealistic expectations. Um, my my initial thought on why plans fail was just lack of execution, because I really believe whether you do a cookie cutter financial plan that's generic and you found online, if you execute it, it will work. Obviously, at our firm, we believe in uh, unique financial plans, goals-based plannings, planning and money management that is specific to the client, I think that works a lot better for people. But the the most important thing is that you execute the plan. And to go with what you're saying, yes, we need accurate data going in. And once we have that, then we need execution and everything should work out. I'll give you my second main reason plans fail. They're not they're static and not dynamic. And this is not always the fault of the fine of the financial advisor or the client. I think back to 10 years ago, we were doing financial plans. We've been doing financial plans for 15 years here. But 10 years ago is when it kind of got to the point where, okay, every person that comes in the door, we're going to do a financial plan for. And when we did that process, we'd walk them through the same process we do today. But at the kind of presentation meeting, we printed out a bound copy, sat it in front of them. 
went through it with them, worked through a couple of scenarios and either they said, yeah, that looks good. Or maybe I want to spend a little more, a little less. And if they did that, we'd have them back for another meeting with a new bound copy. But as soon as we kind of agreed on everything, guess what happens to the bound copy? It got thrown in the drawer. Thrown away, started a fire, maybe, who knows? <laughs> Bonfire, whatever it could be. But point is, nothing ever came about it. In the last probably four years, we've transitioned to the point where these plans are not static. They're completely dynamic. And what I mean by that is when someone comes in for review, we're trying to make sure that plan's updated, make sure the numbers haven't changed, and people more than ever are relying on the results of the financial plan to start to make their decisions going forward in retirement. We had one yesterday. We just updated it a year ago. Well, their portfolio is up like $200,000. And they said, what's it look like now? And I said, well, without running anything, it looks better. She goes, well, let's just run it off what it was before. And it was like 96%. So she goes, well, that builds me a big buffer. I said, yes, it does. But we're updating the plan form all, all the right. time. And it's the best way to make decisions. And these people aren't retired. One's still working. One just took a different job because she can afford to not contribute anymore to the 401k plan. We gave her the ability to do that or provided the insight to that ability to go ahead and do that. So having a very dynamic plan where you're constantly looking at the changes that are happening are very important because most people over three, four five years, their life has changed so much they can't even begin to explain to you. It doesn't change that much in six months. And if you're constantly making small adjustments, it's like going to the dentist. You just do the, the maintenance once or twice a year. Same thing on a financial plan. We don't have to do a massive overhaul in five years. Yeah. And for I, for me, the, the stuff you're talking about where you update and then model scenarios, and th that's what's really valuable for the client. Because in our planning software, it puts out so much data that we interpret and it's probably meaningful to us as the advisors but most of our clients one they don't care about a lot of it and two if we talk them through it it's just not something they're interested in they're going to be so bored they're just going to stop listening but the real value is when they have a question of like the situation you're talking where they've built in this huge buffer well and what if they're thinking, okay, I want to spend $20,000 because I want to take all my kids and all my grandkids on a really cool vacation. We can all have this great time as a family. Well, now they know that they can spend that money and feel good about it. So that's like, that's the real value, I think, to the client is seeing the scenarios and all the other data is important. I think it's important for us because we need to understand it. Um, I think the real value is modeling the scenarios and help and just giving people this, that sense of confidence that they get. And I think sometimes we overlook the value that the financial advisor actually provides And this step of presenting is where they provide a lot of value to the client that maybe isn't seen, but you know, the ideal value, the ideal advisor is going to bring value to their clients, you know, through customized recommendations, through kind of a multi-step approach to breaking down how this works and simplifying it. You know, if I just print a financial plan and say, here you go, Mr. Client, they don't know what they're doing. In fact, we know this. We, for what, maybe two years, provided clients access to go look at their financial plan on demand and all these different options. It's a disaster because we end up basically just doing a review with them because they really don't know how to interpret the data or what it really means. So you need to make sure that advisor 
is really helping you understand what this means for your portfolio. If it's overly complicated for most people, they're not going to enjoy the experience. I mean, it doesn't have to be that complicated as an advisor or as advisors. We need to be able to portray what the probability of probability is that somebody won't outlive their money in a very, very simple way. Yeah. Most people don't care about the mechanics. You, you get your oil changed. Do you care how they change the oil? No, you just make right, sure no. that's all you care about is that your car runs. You don't break down four miles down the road. And there was a study done by a, a company a couple of years ago. I'll never forget it. Asked clients what they really wanted most. What they really wanted most was two things. One, to know if they were on track. And if they weren't, number two, how to get on track. And that's what a financial plan does. It doesn't find them the snazziest investment, the new widget. It tells you if you're on track and if not, what you got to do to get on track. That yeah. simple. And that's really, I, you know, I think that's an approach we take. And I, I did like the end of this article talk where it talks about the ideal advisor because we're almost really consultants with people and how to make money decisions. Um, and I, I feel like our firm, I think we've done such a good job with like marketing and education that we don't really... Um, we don't really uh, answer the questions like the emotional questions as much anymore uh, of like when the market's high and someone reads something that scares them. We still do. But for the most part, our clients know that they're long term investors and they're educated on that. So we're, we've kind of moved beyond some of that stuff to helping them make bigger decisions of, you know, how much money can you spend? How long is this money going to last? tax strategies to get money from an IRA to a Roth so then they can pass it on tax-free. So we're kind of with our software and just our approach and kind of taking, like this article talks about more of a, being more of a consultant, we're just helping them reach their goals. And that's really the, you know, that's our real value, just helping, you know, we're guiding them. We're not really telling them how to do it. We're just kind of guiding them to the end result. Yeah, I think that's key. If you want to reach your goals, you can go to btwellshow.com. There's a button right on the front page, get a plan or meet with an advisor. We'd be happy to help you guys get on the right track, try to reach your goals. With that said, I really enjoyed this show, Elias. Do you have any other closing remarks? Um, I don't know. I don't today. I think we had a really good show. Hey, and by the way, we're going to end the show by saying go Hawkeyes. Six years in a row, we've won the interstate rivalry. Okay, um, I do have something to say about that. What would you like to say? Well, it's six years in a row that Iowa has beaten Iowa State. And I don't know if you saw the on-field interview with Coach Ferentz after the game, but uh, the gal from ESPN asked him, do you feel like there's kind of this sense of, because of all the hype, Iowa State was really hyped this year, and they probably should be. They're an up-and-coming program. And she asked Coach Ferentz, is there kind of a feeling of, hey, we're still here? And he's very humble. He just laughed and he said, yeah, kind of. So anyway, yeah, go Hawks. And yeah, kind of, the Hawks are still and there. Hey, I'm, I'm go Cyclones when they don't play the Hawkeyes. I mean, I want everybody in the state to do well and have a great program. And my my, my father-in-law is a big Cyclone fan, so I'm having a lot of fun with him right now. Um, but with that said, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, hope you catch us next time. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. 
To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.